0: Romans 5, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified
1: through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom
0: we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. As I mentioned a minute ago, my name is Pastor Eric. I'm going to stand out here this Sunday so that I don't feel like I'm hiding in the trees while we we talk about God's Word here. But um, I know some of you are visitors for VBS Sunday, but we have, with a few breaks since the beginning of the year, been preaching through the Book of Romans, which Lord willing we will continue to be preaching through for quite a while yet. Um, And so we are in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and let's pray as we get ready to come to God's Word. Oh, God and Father. I thank you that you are the great creator and sustainer of all things and a God who draws near to us and speaks to us. I pray that we might hear you this morning, that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word and make us attentive to it. I pray that you would be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we've been preaching through Romans, and we're going to get to these verses from Romans in a couple minutes. But first... Uh, we need to go on this little journey if they're going to make sense to us the way they need to, all right? So it seems to me that there are two realities about this world that nobody can really deny. Two realities that nobody can really deny. One of them is that this world is unbelievably beautiful. I mean, that's, that's true on the big scale. I feel like we've had a lot of this imagery of... Um, of, of stars in outer space this week that I've been around because of VBS. But, you know, you, you go, like, look up at the sky, never mind to learn about it, and all the, the vast distances and massive suns and um, nebula and galaxies. And, I mean, it's, it's incredible, and it's in this expansive kind of beauty out there. And even in this world, right, it's a world of mountains and oceans. Elizabeth and I were in Jamaica on our 10th wedding anniversary a few weeks ago, and we got to climb a waterfall, right, which was quite the experience. It's it's incredible, this universe, and awe-inspiring and improbable. And it's beautiful down in the details, too, not just the big stuff. It's not just that big galactic light show, but the idea that, like, an infant's laugh can sound the way that it does. The idea that there can be so many shades of a single color like blue. The idea that you can squeeze stuff out of a cow's udders and let it rot for a year and what comes out is cheese, right? There's there's so many things about this world in the big and in the small scale that are remarkable and beautiful. This world's beautiful. The second undeniable truth is that this world is a disaster. It is a mess. I mean, like we live in a world where people die. And never mind that where we kill people, right? I mean, like, like, like we talk about war in this kind of glorified and exciting and enthusiastic sense, but we're talking about you read about like World War II or Vietnam or something, and millions of people were killed by other people in those moments, right? And can you, I mean, can you, can you can you picture millions of people? What that would even look like if you could see that tragedy all at once? And that's not just a thing of the past. I mean, right now, right? And wars going on right now. Syria, 450,000 people dead since 2011. Iraq, 268,000 people dead. 500,000 in the Somali Civil War. 178,000 in Darfur. You could go on and on. And that's just one metric. There's all kinds of horrible things that happen all the time. People starve, abuse happens. There's really dark things that we're not going to talk about for the sake of the younger members of our audience, right? All of that evil in this world. Plus, all the humdrum everyday evil, the stuff that we all encounter, right? People betray people and lie, say cruel things to others. So, that's true of this world too war and abuse and grief and darkness. And at the same time, like we said, people fall in love and music exists and sunsets look the way that they do. This world is incredibly beautiful and deeply horrifying, both at the same time. So what do you do with that, right? What do you do with those two realities? Well, it seems to me that you've got three options, three options. Option one is that you pretend like one side or the other of that isn't really true. You kind of try to live in denial of one side or the other. So maybe you deny the evil and the ugliness. Um, that's kind of the like peppy inspirational speaker approach, right? That, that you just think positive thoughts and just pretend like everything is the good and the beautiful, which might work for you if you live in America and are employed and white and are healthy and don't have senseless loss or hardship in your life, but that's not very many people and even for the people that it is, that probably won't last forever, or maybe you deny the goodness, right? Maybe that's the side you try to deny. You say, it's all just the senseless, ugly tragedy. Just nature red and truth and claw. And you might feel like there's a kind of nobility in that honesty, but, but that doesn't really work either. People, people talking about religion sometimes talk about this idea of the problem of evil that religion has, right? How can God be good and there be evil in the world? But as much as that's a thing that we wrestle with, there's also a problem of good that we all have in a real sense, that you can't kiss the person you love or hold your child or hear an orchestra play and not feel in your heart that there is goodness and beauty there. So you can try to deny one side or the other, or you can try to deny both sides of it. Try to pretend like you just don't care. I feel like that's the kind of spiritual answer that certain people in our world give. It's what like Buddhists and people would do, that we should just deny desire and stop caring and try to be above all of it, try to be above the good and try to be above the bad. And that, again, sounds kind of enlightened and noble, except that in the first place, that's going to cost you the things that make you most deeply human, Right, Because human beings aren't just like brains on sticks off somewhere. We are beings with bodies and passions and desires who live in a world and ache with longing. And down that road where you just try to not care lies unimaginable darkness because that kind of serene spiritual detachment never challenges the evil in our world. You don't try to change things if you're trying to just be above it all and you just let it grow. So this world is incredibly beautiful and incredibly broken. Some people try to deny one side of that or the other, and some people try to deny both, but none of that in the end really works. True Christianity does not take any of those approaches. Instead, what Christianity does, I think perhaps uniquely, is that it says yes to both of those realities. Yes to both of them. Yes, Christianity says on the one hand, this world is beautiful and good. I mean, you can't go go read the first chapter of Genesis, right? Where God creates stuff, and and over and over he makes he makes something like oceans and land or stars or whatever, and he says it's good over and over. And then, in case you miss it, at the end he looks at it all again and says it's very good, right? This world he created it to be good, and true Christianity is a meant is meant in a sense to be about that goodness and beauty being renewed. At the end of the story, when Jesus returns, he comes back here to this earth and we are resurrected to live on this earth, except it's this earth with all of the beautiful things made fuller and all of the ugly and evil things purged from it. So Christianity insists that this world is good and beautiful, but it also insists that this world is broken and it's a mess. In fact, Christianity makes a very specific claim about that brokenness. It claims that the world was beautiful and that in the midst of this beauty, God placed human beings like us. And that our job was to be his representatives his caretakers, to show forth that goodness, to make it even more good. And instead of looking at this beautiful world and saying, let's make it even more beautiful. Let's show forth God's creativity and glory in this world and enjoy him and enjoy it. Instead of all of that, we looked at this world and we said, mine, mine. It's all for me. It's all about me. And in that, we went to war with heaven, and rebelled against the creator of this good world, and we went to war with each other. And we turned against each other. And that because of that war, unimaginable darkness and brokenness has entered the world. Christianity, in a sense, says the world is like one of those pictures you see of a bombed out city. Have you seen some of those? Whether like back from World War II or in the present. Like, like this kind of thing, right? Um, that city has been bombed out. And so there's these once majestic buildings that are in ruins. That is what our world in the present is like. In Scripture, That on the one hand, you can see the goodness and beauty there, right? You can see the form of the thing as it was meant to be, but at the same time, everything has been wrecked. And that we are, on the one hand, the refugees of that world, right? The people who have seen too much, the people who have that haunted look in our eyes. We're the refugees, and we're the ones who wrecked it. In our rebellion, we humans embarked on a mission Of destruction of God's creation. We in Scripture are the shell shocked refugees and the suicide bombers of God's good world. And that, all of that, we need if we're gonna understand what Paul's about to say in Romans 5 1 and 2. That's the big picture of the Bible's story. That's kind of like, in the broad strokes, what Scripture says our world is like. And so we take all of that and then we come to Romans 5. All right? So here's how Romans 5 starts. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and that first part we've been talking about before, that idea since we've been justified by faith, is really what the whole first four chapters of Romans were all about. But he says, since that's true, we, um, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's two ideas Paul's about to talk about, and this is the first one that we have, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. But stop, because if, unless, you, unless you're hearing those words within what we just said, right, what I just spent five minutes saying about the big picture of the Bible, we're going to misunderstand those words. So I think when people in our world talk about peace with God, what they mean is just sort of like feeling peaceful, feeling zen, things being chill and all right. That's, I think, what people somehow like emotionally sense when they hear about the idea of peace with God. But that's not what Paul means here. That's not what Paul means by faith, or by peace. Instead, what he's saying is two specific things that really key off of what we just said about the big picture story of the Bible. Two specific things that key off of that broader story. First, when Paul talks about peace with God, he means enemies being made friends. Enemies of God being reconciled back to him. We are at war with God, like we said. Just a few verses from now, in Romans 5.10, Paul says, Paul just spells it out, he says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, right? So we're talking about a kind of peace where we are the enemies, we're the villains, and God is the one seeking to make peace between us and himself. So the first part of the good news that we are at peace with God is not the good news that like things are pretty chill now and we're a-okay. The good news of peace with God is that because of what God has done in Jesus, we're not going to get annihilated because we've picked a fight with the creator of the universe that we can't possibly win, which is really our situation without God working peace, which isn't what we're used to thinking about, but we need that truth because otherwise we end up believing in what I think is kind of just cheap peace. Cheap peace, which is peace that doesn't change anything. What we expect to happen between us and God, what I expect to happen, like kind of down in my sinful heart, is that we're going to have peace because God's going to look at the bad things that I do and say, Meh, it's no big deal. That that's what I think that peace is supposed to look like, right? And that sounds nice, but only, again, if you're not in that story that we talked about at the beginning. Because if you're in that story, then you have to suddenly recognize that the things that I'm doing, the evil in my heart, has actually wrecked the world. That it's people like me who are responsible for the broken and ugly things in creation. And if that's true, then God can't respond that way. It's like, like picture you're watching a James Bond movie, right? And, you know, and Dr... Dr. What's It or whatever has this evil plan to, like, use a laser satellite to blow up London, right? You know, and so, so Bond comes in and he, he confronts Dr. What's It, but instead of doing what we would expect James Bond to do, right, which is like, or, or, like, kick him back into the improbable death machine that Dr. What's It's built or whatever, you know, the thing that actually happens. What, what if Bond, you know, they're there in the final moment of confrontation and Bond is just like, you know, man, you just go your way and I'll go mine. You know, we're We're cool. Let's just have peace, man, and leave. Would that be a good story? <laughs> no, because doctor Watts What's-it's going to nuke London, right? We all recognize that we, need, that we need something to happen because his actions are actually destructive. They're actually wrecking the world. Which means that we can't expect God to treat us um, in a way that doesn't kind of confront the fact that it's people like us, right? That have wrecked the world. So the first thing peace with God should teach us is that we're talking about something objective where God is coming to us as his enemies and seeking to work peace between us, his enemies, and himself. But that still doesn't get us there because that's still too small of an understanding of peace. All right. So there's a second thing we need to understand about peace too when we talk about it in the Bible. In English, the word peace, usually when we use it means an absence of something, an absence of conflict, we're bad stuff. So like when I say the United States is at peace with such and such country, I don't mean that we're living in harmony and singing kumbaya, right? I just mean right now we're not actively trying to bomb each other into oblivion. You know, that's what peace means, I think, often when we use it in London or in English. But, um, but in the Bible, the idea of peace isn't like that. It's rooted in this Hebrew word called shalom. I'm not a big fan of trotting out Hebrew words, but this is one that's probably familiar to some of you. Shalom. And shalom, um, we translate that as peace, but it means a lot more than just the absence of war. Here's how um, a Hebrew dictionary tries to define it. Some of the definitions it gives shalom include completeness, soundness, welfare, safety, security, prosperity, flourishing, All that kind of comes in this idea of peace. Which is to say that the best way to define peace, when we hear it in the Bible, is as this world the way it's supposed to be. This world the way that it is supposed to be. Or like we said at the beginning, this world is deeply beautiful and deeply broken. And peace in scripture is what it means to embrace and see those beautiful parts of it restored and flourishing while those broken parts are removed and healed. Now when Paul talks about that, he says we have peace with God. He isn't saying that we're rejoicing because somehow that is all here now, right? Saying that we have peace with God is not saying that that shalom, that peace, that flourishing, that perfection and beauty, that that's here in our world now. Um, But here's what he is saying, I think. And this is hardly an original picture to me, but given our VBS theme this week, picture the solar system, all right? Picture the solar system. So we have like the sun, yes, everyone knows how the solar system works, I still hope that we remember it, you know, and the planets orbit around it, and planetoids and asteroids and comets and all kinds of other interesting things. Picture the solar system, right? What would happen if tomorrow you pull the sun out of the middle of the solar system, and I don't just mean that like, it would get dark. Let's assume that we'd be okay otherwise. But what would happen to the solar system if, this, if the sun just is gone? So everything would fly apart is really the answer, right? So suddenly like Jupiter would be zooming off away from us and Mars might be like zooming off towards us and the asteroid belt would start turning into an asteroid cloud. right? You remove that one object at the center and everything else starts falling to pieces because that one central relationship is lost. When the sun's at the center, somehow everything else works fine and has its appropriate place. But when you remove the sun, everything starts to fall apart. But here's the thing. Imagine that you are in that sunless solar system. And again, we're assuming that there's other issues, like you wouldn't have any light and you would all be, we would all be ice cubes. But assuming those things aren't true, right? But you're in that sunless solar system. It would be easy to focus just on the presenting problems, to just say, like, man, like, Jupiter's flying off. Come back here, Jupiter. Like, what's wrong with Jupiter, right? And, and, oh, we've got to deal with this Mars problem as it's coming flying towards us. It would be easy for us just to focus on those issues. And in fact, if it was long enough ago that the sun had disappeared... We might not even get the, that, that that's the root problem, right? I mean, someone says, well, what, what the problem is that we're missing the sun. And we're like, no, the problem is just that Jupiter's going in the wrong direction, right? The problem is just that Mars is flying towards us. Like, don't talk about this sun stuff to me. In our world, we can all do that. We can focus on the presenting problems. Among war and poverty and sickness and all of those things. We notice, all of us notice, how out of whack things are. But to try to address those broken relationships without putting God back at the center of things is going to work about as well as trying to get Jupiter to just come back here. Which is to say that peace with God, when Paul talks about it, it's not that that somehow fully realizes that shalom, that peace. It's not that that suddenly fixes everything magically. It doesn't. But it is to say that it's restoring that central relationship which can then begin pull everything else back into its right place. The process of healing and restoration isn't ended somehow just because of Christianity, but it is started. So that's the idea, peace with God. But then there's a natural second question, which is, okay, that sounds great, but what does that actually look like then in our lives? Right? It sounds great to talk about beauty and shalom and stuff, but what does that look like? In verse 2, Paul starts to give us the answer to that question. So if you look at verse 2, he says, Through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So Paul was talking about Jesus, and he says, Through him, through Jesus, first he says we've obtained access by faith into this grace where we now stand. And that's really addressing the first part of peace with God. We said, how can God make peace with us, his enemies? How do enemies get made friends? And his answer, um, Paul's answer, Scripture's answer is that even though we are the ones destroying God's good world, through the work of Jesus, God is making peace. And I kind of debated how to handle it this morning, but I think we're not going to dig too much into that first half of this verse because that, in many ways, is what we spent a lot of time talking about a few weeks ago. I know some of you are visitors. If you're curious, if you go online and listen to the couple of sermons we preached in Romans 3, really that's what we spent all of those things trying to talk through, is this idea of how can God, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, be making peace with us even though we are in rebellion against him. All right. But the very simple answer is that it's through God's grace. God does this work to reconcile us in Jesus, this work to make peace in offering up Jesus, and that as we trust in that work, then we move into that relationship of peace with God. What's kind of new in what Paul's saying, and where I want to focus this morning is then on the second half of that verse. So he says that we stand on grace in this peace with God, but we're also, as we're doing that, we're moving forward into something. We are rejoicing in hope. We're rejoicing in this thing we've set our hope in. And this thing that is our hope is the glory of God. Our hope is God's glory, Paul says. Our hope is God's glory. So why did God make the world? Have you ever thought about that question? Why did God create stuff? Why did he make trees and pandas and pomegranates and all the kind of like glorious complexity of this world? And there's a lot of ways to answer that. But one of the central ways the Bible answers that question, you see it in a place like Isaiah 43. He says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. This is God talking. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory. God created us for his glory, which is to say he made the world in order to show forth, to have kind of like show out from him the beauty and creativity and goodness and power that exists in him. So that can sound strange to us on First Plus, I know, because obviously it's wrong for me to kind of do stuff for my glory right? You know, I, we all have that sense that that's self-centered. But, but the difference is that God is the center of everything, and I am not. He belongs at the center. I'm just like a sack of water, molecules, and carbon, right? And so for me to pretend like the universe revolves around me is fundamentally arrogant and foolish, but God is the center of everything. The purpose of the universe is God's glory. And the way that that glory is being shown forth still, like we said in creation, right, is is through God's beauty and goodness and power and creativity being shown forth into the world. That's what God's glory is. That's what it actually means to glorify God is to be showing that forth, which means that a world that is about showing forth God's glory and that beautiful world that we talked about at the beginning and a world of peace And Shalom, those are all the same world. God's glory and this world's goodness, they fit together. It's like a glove on a hand. So what does that mean for us? The simple answer, I think, the simple thing that it challenges us to ask, is are we living then for God's glory? Are we living for God's glory? Every action in this world, like here, so here's what that means. All right, so everything we do in this world, we're seeking something in the first place, some immediate thing, and that's not where the problem is. I'm seeking happiness, or I'm seeking security, or I'm seeking, um, I'm seeking satisfaction, or something like that, and that's not inherently wrong. I, as a human being, it's fine for me to seek to be happy and seek to be secure and seek to be comfortable, things like that. But I'm seeking that through something else, right? So I'm seeking to be happy through Buying stuff, or through making people like me, or through doing something right, and that 's where it gets problematic because um, because in scripture, the argument is basically that if you 're seeking those things happiness, security, comfort, and the ultimate thing you 're seeking them through is something other than god 's glory it's going to end up being warped and twisted. It's not going to give you the thing that you're really seeking. You're just going to find an imposter or a shadow. And that can sound theoretical. So let me try to give that legs instead, all right? So in the first place, when we talk about giving God glory— We are not just talking about certain religious things you do, all right? If that's what you have in your brain, like, we need to change that first. So, like, we're not just saying that giving God glory means, like, that you go to church more or that you pray more or say hallelujah more or something like that, okay? In the Bible, everything that we can do can be for God's glory. So as Paul in 1 Corinthians puts it, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So in the first place, what we're talking about is things, not just like certain religious things, right? But it's that, the how and the why of everything that we do, of eating and drinking and all the stuff that we do. Um, and so, so that means that like, like when you're working at your job, right? Let's take that as your example. When you're working at your job, why are you doing that? How are you doing that? Are you doing that to make money, right? To, you know, afford those vacations and weekends and big televisions, Are you doing it to kind of like influence other people or impress them to win friends and kind of make people think you're great? Maybe, are you doing it for your own sense of identity, right? Because it makes you feel important or needed or powerful. So maybe something else. There's all kinds of reasons, all kinds of ways that you could answer that question. But the point is that whatever reason you give, if the ultimate reason that you're giving isn't God's glory, your work is going to end up getting twisted. I mean, like, we all get that with money, right? That's, I, I said that first because that's the obvious one we all think about. We all get a sense that if people are only doing their jobs for money, that that ends up kind of warping the way they work, right? Like, we, we, we've all seen people that were like, you're really just in this for the paycheck. And that's not a thing that we would describe as beautiful or good. But if, if you're doing it to make it your identity, right, that's also going to mess things up. I mean, in the first place, that's just going to destroy your work-life balance. If your work is fundamentally about your identity, then your family and your friendships and the other important things in your world are going to be destroyed because you're just going to lay them on the altar of that that work that's giving you your identity. And it's it's going to warp the way you work. You're going to become harsh and unforgiving, or you're going to become insecure and spiral into anxiety because if your whole identity rests on this thing, then it's going to mess you up. Same if it's about the way that people view you, or some other thing, right? That at the end of the day, whatever the reason is for your work, if it isn't the glory of God, it's going to end up warping what work is meant to be. God created us to work. God told us to work, and he's glorified when we do it faithfully and honestly and well. As Colossians 3 says, whatever you do, Work at it with your whole being as for the Lord and not for men, because you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as your reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So we're called to work, do our work, our jobs for God and His glory. But here's the beautiful thing about that if you're doing that, then that actually gives you this beautiful freedom in your work. Because suddenly you don't need that job to define you, right? So when it's going well, you can celebrate with the Lord in that. And when it's going poorly, well, it's going to be hard. You can say, that's okay because my identity doesn't rest in this thing, right? You don't need people to recognize you or agree with you. You don't need to be succeeding at impressing them in order to feel like your work is, is, is meaningful. That You can just work hard and seek, um, and seek the good in it because doing that in itself is where you're finding your satisfaction, because God is delighted in what you're doing. Now, of course, we say that, and that sounds really nice, and in practice, it's a lot more complicated, right? I'm not suggesting that tomorrow you can just decide to flip all the switches in your heart, and magically, like, you're not gonna wrestle with those mixed motives and wrestle with those other motivations, right? But as we seek God's glory, as we seek to make that our highest aim in something like our work, we are actually set free to enjoy and do that work the way it's created to be, rather than try to make it serve something else. And that works for other things, too. I mean, like, let to give one other example, parenting, right? What is, what is my and your, what is our ultimate goals in parenting? I mean, is it for our kids to be successful? I mean, what happens if they're not what happens if they decide to become artists or pastors or something, and you know, and leave you and leave you feeling like, well, I mean, what what if what if is, is it to, for your kids to be happy, right? In a sense, that's good, but man, life is hard, and I've yet to meet a kid that gets to go through it and experience only happiness and flourishing. As hard as that is for a parent to agree, is it that um, is it for is your goal for your kid to validate you somehow to prove what a good parent you are? Good luck. (laughs) But if you're seeking to glorify God with your kids, right? If you make that your highest aim, this balance naturally begins to emerge, right? I mean, because you start disciplining them when they need to be disciplined because it's good for them. And you show them grace when you need to show them grace because it's best for them. You raise them to live lives that aren't easy or successful but that are meaningful and good. And when they fail, it breaks your heart, yes, doesn't destroy you because you still have something that your identity is rooted in that is deeper than where your kids are at. And again, none of that means that it makes it easy, right? That's not a formula to keep bad stuff from happening to your kids. It's not—I mean, Mar- Mary was a good parent. Mary and Joseph were good parents, right? And they raised the perfect child, and he ended up breaking their hearts, right? Getting crucified. I mean— Like, we can't have that promise that there won't be heartbreak or sadness. But parenting that ultimately seeks God's glory, even though it won't be easy or pain-free, will be the best thing that you can do for your kids, and for yourself, and for the world. It's going to be the best sort of raising your kids. It's putting the sun back at the center, right? And that begins to restore everything else. Which, remember, is what all of this comes back to. Because living for God's glory, that is the only way to truly live in this world that is deeply beautiful and deeply broken. See, this world is too broken for us to make something in this world our goal. It just is. That's the problem with living for something. Whatever that created thing is, is that that, that thing, there's goodness there. And there's badness there, and it's all tangled up together, and the more you try to eat of that thing, the more of the badness is going to creep in and destroy you. You need something bigger than this world, because this world is so deeply broken, if you're going to live life in it. But at the same time, this world is too beautiful for us to ignore, and that's why we need to seek God's glory in our daily lives. Because that isn't taking us out of this world. Instead, that's actually teaching us to live in this world, to live in the midst of the brokenness, and to live for the beauty as best we can. We can enjoy our work and enjoy our kids and enjoy food and drink and rest and creation and everything in the way that it was meant to be enjoyed. But we can only do that because it is God's glory that's the thing we're ultimately seeking. That actually empowers us to relish and enjoy those things as good rather than robbing us of those things as we seek to make them our ultimate goal. So what is it you're living for? Is it God's glory? If you've never thought about that, if you've never sought that, maybe this is the time to start thinking about that. Start seeking to make that your aim. And if you are, that's something that will continue to grow into our whole lives. So let's pray daily that we can walk into it more and more. Would you pray with me? Father God, you are good, and there is much good in this world, and there is much sadness and hardness. I pray that you might give us the hope of the peace that we have with you and call us into lives living out of that peace, seeking your glory. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me now as we sing God's praise?
1: i sin Good To age, he stands, and time, time is in, in his, his hands, hands beginning, beginning at the end, end beginning at, at the end. end. The God had three in one Father, Spirit, Son.
0: with you and with many of your and my children this morning. Um, it is such a blessing. A couple of just practical notes before we leave. One, like I mentioned, I will be gone this week starting Tuesday. The wonderful Rob Crusader will be preaching next week. Be sure to, to be there for that. But um, yeah, so if you need anything, I'll still answer email, but just know that. There's also, um, after the service, if you'd like to join us, it's the last week of a new members class that we're holding, um, as well as um, week three of the Jonah Um, adult education class and there's children's sunday school down that hallway if you'd like to but mainly there's a time of fellowship afterwards it's where you go get your kids it's where you pick up their crafts and part of the goodness of this world when god creates it is that he does not create a human being but two human beings together who are commanded to then be fruitful and fill the earth so part of the goodness of this world is us each other this great mass of humanity that we're surrounded with and in relationship with of the brokenness of this world is that often we're cut off from our fellow human beings, but a good part of it being restored is us living in community together. So shake someone's hand that you don't know. Introduce yourselves. It is a good and beautiful thing. Now go with God's blessing. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you his peace today and forever. Amen.